but it certainly it gives you a perspective of you know if if you've got nothing and you lose everything you already know that you can lose everything and be okay even at that doorway when i was crying you know i had no money i had in effect i had nothing i didn't even have my ability to move a foot forward and being 40 years old literally bawling your eyes out in front of public on a sunny saturday afternoon you don't get much lower than that hi and welcome to podcaster stories each episode we'll have a conversation with podcasters from across the globe and share their story what motivates them why they started a show how they grew the show and more we'll also talk about their personal lives and some of the things that have happened or made them the person they are today and now here's your host danny brown Hi and welcome to Podcaster Stories, the show that meets the people behind the voices of the shows we listen to. This week I have Stephen Webb from Truro in the UK. Stephen's a host of the Stillness and the Storms podcast, a show that helps you find inner peace in difficult times. Stephen, welcome to the show. How about you tell us about yourself and your podcast? Um, hi Danny, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, my podcast, I, I do a lot of meditation so, and really when I hit rock bottom when I was 40, I suppose I better go a little bit further back than that. Um, I, I often jump straight to my rock bottom mm. because that was kind of the worst thing that happened to me. But when I was 18, I broke my neck and ended up paralyzed. And I dived into a swimming pool. It was in Truro where I live now still. And I kind of, I, I went to hospital for 12 months and come back. And that kind of changed my whole life completely. I now use an electric wheelchair. I cannot move my hands. I'm paralyzed. Um, the easiest way I've said, I never know whether it's really politically correct, but, um, from my nipples down, I cannot feel. <laughs> so it's the easiest way of explaining it. Everybody has them and everybody knows where they are. So at that point, I kind of got on with life. I had the normal struggles and all of life and things like that. I, different girlfriends and I just enjoyed a different kind of life and style. And then really, Nothing really happened in my life. I opened a computer shop. I ended up bankrupt and things like that. So it was the normal ups and downs of every kind of life. But when I hit 40, I ended up single. Out of the blue, I got a text message in the morning off my then partner. Um, I don't know if, I don't know what I want anymore. And of course, I've been around the block enough to know what that meant. So that kind of just knocked me for six completely. I was 40 years old. I was paralyzed. I, didn't really have a career. I didn't have any money or anything like that. And here I was faced with never, never going to see anybody again. I'm never going to enjoy my life again or anything like that. It's the first time really been paralyzed and I really creeped up into my life. And it's the first time I felt really depressed. And then a few weeks later, I was at a supermarket. And at that point, my chair broke down. A wire went in through the tire and the tire half burst. And it stopped. And I didn't think life could get any lower, but at that point it did. I, I said, I started crying, sat in the supermarket with a guy. The security guard was just a few feet away. I was, I wasn't with anybody at the time. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was really busy. And I just didn't know what to do. I just burst out in tears and bearing in mind, I didn't know anybody around me. I didn't have anybody there to like, and the security guard walked over and he squeezed my shoulder. And it was, it was that little bit of comfort. I don't think he knew what to say. I don't think he had any idea what to say, but it was enough to think, well, someone's there, you know, 
I'm not alone in this. And after composing myself and all that, and I thought, how, how can I even fix my chair? I had no money. My credit cards were completely full. I knew I was in a, in a broken electric wheelchair, paralyzed, single. And at that point, I just lost all hope. Like, um, I think they say it's like the dark night of the soul. I read about it afterwards, but for weeks at that point, for several weeks, I couldn't sleep. My mind was too active. I would think of all the worst things. Of course, my ex-girlfriend was having a wonderful time with all different relationships, all the things that I'd love to do. These things were, which of course wasn't true, but my mind thought it was true. So I was creating everything that was terrible in the world and I was the victim of everything. I couldn't sleep at all. And I started drinking every night. I started one or two glasses of Summer Comfort. And it was quite embarrassing because I was asking my carers to pour up the drink because I have 24-hour care to help me. And I've had that since I was 18. So it's one thing when you're going to the drinks cabinet yourself and pouring it up. It's another thing when you've got to ask someone else to do it. And I wasn't a drinker, so it was unusual, but they weren't saying anything. And after a few weeks, that one glass turned into two, turned into three. And at that point, A, it was embarrassing, but B, I knew it was a slippery road. And that was my lowest point in my life, I think. I knew I had to do something about it. And I started reading books, which was unusual for me because I'd never read a book since school because I was labeled dyslexic. And at that time, they didn't really know what to do about it. So it was just, well, you're dyslexic. And I lived up to that that um, paradigm. So I started reading books. It was really difficult, but it was so difficult, it was enough that I could fall asleep. And that's what I did for weeks. And then every single book would look up and go, well, you've got to meditate. You've got to love yourself and meditate. And they were the two bits of advice for Hey, I, I can't love myself. That's narcissistic and that's so wrong and everything against what I would ever think of. And as far as meditation, you got to be kidding. My mind, my mind's so overthinking. So, and the only time I tried meditation was in my late twenties. And I sat down for about three minutes because I thought it was cool. I, I thought I might get a girlfriend now. But I, <laughs> you know, I thought it was a trendy thing to do. But it lasted about three minutes and I realized my mind doesn't shut down. So here, the two solutions to my pain was meditation and start having compassion for yourself, forgiving yourself. So when, every, when one person tells you something or when one book tells you something, you go, okay, it may be true. But when everything is pointed to the same thing, at some point you've got to go, okay, <laughs> I cannot be right and everybody else <laughs> and everybody else being wrong. So I started meditating. I started sitting down with my thoughts. And I quickly learned that I wasn't my thoughts. And that was the major breakthrough for me. It was like, wow, I have thoughts, but I'm not those thoughts. And this is what led to my journey really now, that realization from being at that rock bottom, being at the constant mercy of all the thoughts I thought was true, all the pain and suffering. And I, I was still disabled. I still had all the problems that come with my disability. The not walking and always the easy parts of it. It's the stuff that goes with it that is the difficult parts. And just realizing that I can have a thought, but I don't have to do anything with it was so liberating for me. 
It was so freeing of that suffering. I still felt pain. I still got upset. I, I, I would cry at a John Lewis advert. You know, I, I was one of those people that was very emotional. You know, it, it, if I hear a nice story, I'll cry. So, but it didn't get rid of that. I still felt things deeply. I still worried. I, I still got angry and all. But I had this freedom from the suffering that that caused. And that in part taught me or showed me to help other people through meditation. And really the meditation of just, just sit with whatever's going on. So I would help other people and all. And then that led really to the podcast, Stillness in the Storms. You know, the storm's always raging. The storm's always there, whether it's in the mind, whether it's your emotions, whether it's political, whether it's the external world, anything. We try to spend so much time lining up everything else, trying to sort it out. When the politics are perfect for me, when the outside world, when my family accept and understand me, when everybody listens to me, when everybody thinks the same way as I do, I'll be happy. You know, when I'm perfect health, when I'm perfect weight, we'll be happy. And we spend so much time trying to put out the fires, put out the storms, um, quieting the world down. And then you turn internally on the spiritual journey. <laughs> and you think the spiritual journey is going to be, oh, this is wonderful. I'm now on the spiritual journey. I'm the second half of life and everything's going to be cool. And then you realize there's a raging storm and fire within you. It's like, damn, I've just learned to cope with the one out there. <laughs> and then we turn it inside and you realize I'm crazy. My thoughts are crazy. And I always go back to the quote by Jack Cornfield. He says, my, my subconscious mind is like um, a dangerous neighborhood. I don't like to go there often. And you suddenly realize how crazy we are, how our emotions change every few seconds, how, you know, when, when we used to think we were depressed or we, we were anxious now, whereas now we have anxiety and, we ha and it comes and goes. The same as depression. I feel depressed sometimes instead of I am depressed. And it suddenly lifts these barriers and it enables us to deal with life. Um, life's still the same. There's nothing different in my life today. In actual fact, my life's worse today than it has been most of my life. I'm single. Um, I haven't got any abundance of money. <laughs> I'm in politics. You know, I'm a local councillor. Um, I'm currently the deputy mayor-elect, so I'm about to become the deputy mayor if I get re-elected in May. So really, there's more storms in my life than there ever has been. But I'm at more peace. and. That's what I talk about on stillness of the storms. We got, you don't have to put out the storm. You don't have to stop the thinking, stop the emotions. Um, they'll come and go. You know, we're not really in control of them. It's having the tools and having the knowledge that we don't have to do anything with them when they're arising. And know? I think that's, that's one of the things that I like about your show. Um, is just like you, you were there about why, you know, how life, and how we allow ourselves to get really distracted by things out, outside of control. You have a very straightforward, no BS approach to every episode, and, and you tell it like it is. And, and it was one that, and, and it's always with like a, a self-deprecating humour as well, which I, I really, I think that must be like a really British thing, because I, I tend to find um, British humour very dry and you know self-deprecating. And like, for example, the, there was an episode where you talked about how awesome it is 
to be paralysed. Um, but it still had obviously a very serious. You, you approached it with a more humorous take, but it still had a very serious message, you know. And you you were you were sort of pushing back and saying, "Well, you're you're amazing because you're doing these things," you know, as while paralysed. So how, look how awesome Stephen is, and and the message in that episode was a really strong message. Do, do you find that you often have to push back on people's perceptions, and is that what brought an episode like that to the fore, or what, what's that like? One thing I found always difficult to cope with is is the you're an inspiration, you're amazing, um, you do so much in life, and for the most part of my life, I I was I was living with this deep shame that I didn't see. I would almost see shame and guilt and all that in other people, not me. I'm doing brilliant, um, but every time someone would say I was an inspiration, I was doing amazing, I would want to run from it, but I didn't know why. And and I would look at it as, well, I've got carers. They get me out of bed. Should I really be looked at as something amazing for just doing those things? And I very often didn't look at my life and go, well, do you know what? I do achieve quite a bit. And e- even when I sit back and go, holy crap, I'm deputy mayor of my city. That is like, f- from an ego perspective, I think that's incredible. But I don't look at it as incredible for being paralyzed to do that it's just incredible for me but with this deep shame i would find it very hard and during lockdown i i had so, so many revelations and so many freedoms come about and then one main one is the wheelchair that broke 15 years ago has virtually died again now and for the last during lockdown the batteries completely died and now because of that other things went wrong so about August last year, I reached out to a couple of friends and said, how am I going to fund a new wheelchair? The ones we get available in the UK are not really that applicable if you want to be active, put it that way. And they're about £10,000. And I, I was thinking, well, I cannot ask people for it. And I didn't know why I couldn't ask people. So I, I went to a couple of friends and said, right, we got to do some kind of challenge. we got to do something that... I can get sponsorship and then I can pay for the chair. So I can give publicity to companies. And we tried to work it out. And one of them just looked up and said to me, and she looked up and said, why don't you just ask? People want to help you. Why don't you just ask? And I had so much resistance to that, so much fear come up with that. And I sat with that for a little bit. And I spoke to my other, another friend about that fear. And she said, she looked at me and said, can I be really honest with you? And this was the ex-girlfriend that caused my rock bottom, ironically. We were sat in my dining room and she looked up and can I say something to you? And I, I cannot remember quite the words where she put it. And I, and I, I did not recognize what, what she said to me. But when someone says something to you and you're triggered by it, she, she said, I think you feel guilty about your accident or something. So somewhere along that lines. And I had a, I was triggered, immediate like resistance to this. And what I've learned over the last few years is if you're triggered, there's something there, you know, not to deny it, not get angry and just see what the trigger is. And I sat there and a couple of days later, I phoned her back and said, I think I've got a deep shame. Oh, I know what she said. She said, you feel like the world owes you something or something like that. And it really peed me off, but it was brilliant because 
it unlocked something. And a couple of days later, I said, I, I think I'm, I have a deep shame about my accident. I was the dumbass that dived into the pool that night. I climbed up on top of that wall and I walked along the top of the wall and I looked at my watch. It was September the 1st at 10.31 in the evening and I dived in. And at that moment when I hit the bottom of the pool, I was instantly paralyzed. So from that moment, I've needed 24-hour care. I've needed help on virtually everything in life um, for all my physical things. And life becomes more expensive, like a wheelchair, things like that. I'm lucky I live in the UK, in a country that does help people with disabilities and all. But it doesn't stop the feeling of, you know, I did this. So for nearly 30 years, I had this shame of asking people for help. You know, I would literally be in a shop and someone would say, would you like me to pass that down to you? And I would say, no, I'm okay, thank you. Because I never wanted to be in any trouble. And when I realized my shame of my accident, I realized why I didn't like people calling me a hero, calling me, well, not a hero so much. I, I call myself that. Hmm. <laughs> We're all a hero on our own journey. And I'm kind of trying to embrace that. But when they call me an inspirational, how can I be an inspiration? So subconsciously, how can I be an inspiration when I was a dumbass, broke my neck, and, and I just get on with life? And I never realized it wasn't because I broke my neck. It wasn't because I was a dumbass at night. It was because I do get on with life and I don't make a big issue about my disability, about being in a wheelchair. I would avoid disabled clubs. I would avoid any disabled groups. And I, and I thought it was because I was embracing that I'm not disabled, I can get on with life. And it wasn't. It was because of my deep shame of I created my disability when many people didn't. When I realized that and I realized that I was an inspiration because of what I'd done since my accident. Wow, that was like a freedom that I could never. And suddenly I, I put out a GoFundMe page. I raised the money for a new wheelchair. People gave me the money for the wheelchair. And I was like, wow, this is like unbelievable. And people said to me, it's because of how you handle life, not what you did. And that's what I've realized is the, is the huge thing. Embracing the fact or embracing the fact that I did have that shame for so long has given me so much freedom now. You know, I can happily, I would never have considered the mayor elect position or deputy mayor. I would be, you know, one day that might lead on to be mayor. I would have never considered that I would have been somebody that would embrace people with um, physical disabilities and accessibility issues. That's the thing that I'm standing up for now and shouting about rather than avoiding it, rather than trying to go, hey, look, you know, let's all live an able-bodied life. That's not reality. So in a really long answer to your question, <laughs> I, I, I do feel resistance. And, you know, I'm paralyzed. There's no amount of thinking, law of attraction, whatever you can do is going to change that. And there is some awesomeness that comes to it. <laughs> I, I think one of those things, I think the episode you're talking about, 10 things why it's awesome to be paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And I, I think one of them, I said that I don't have to get out of bed in the middle of the night to go for a pee. How awesome is that? That's a superpower. How many people <laughs> would love that superpower? <laughs> Especially the older we get. <laughs> well, exactly. That's, that's like the worst thing is 
you know, just waking up in the middle of the night as you mentioned, oh, but I'm so warm, it's winter, I really don't want to do anything. That's <laughs> that area. And I think with the, um, you were mentioning there the exact time and date that the accident happened. Um, there was an episode on your podcast where uh, you share the experience of the, the anniversary and the memories that you, yeah. you, you remembered leading up to the accident. And, and you broke down the day that it was a, a normal day, but it wasn't. Um, and I, when I was listening to that, it was like a really moving, I, I could picture everything that you were going through, every action that you were taking during that day leading up uh, to your accident. Is talking about that day hard to do still, or does it ever feel like you're speaking about someone else's life, or what What was it like when you when you make an episode like that? Every anniversary, I, I, I do reflect on it. I reflect on that more than I do my birthday. Um, I'm not sure why, but it, it seems to be September the 1st for me is quite a big thing. I think it's a big thing because... I simply reflect more on that day about my life than I do on my birthday. I got nothing against my birthday. I love growing old. I love the fact that I'm still here. Well, when I recorded that episode, I, I really didn't know how it was going to go, but I just thought about, you know, that Sunday that I broke my neck. And in that episode, I said about when I got out of bed in the morning and I went about my day and I said, this is no ordinary day. But it was an ordinary day. It was just a completely ordinary day, the same as what you've done this morning, the same as what I've done this morning. But we never know when it's the last day you'll do that one thing. You never know when it's the last day you'll be able to phone your mum. You'll be able to hug someone, hug your daughter maybe, or whatever. We never know because one day will be the last day you will do that ordinary thing. And you have to strike a balance between... Living every day as if it's going to be your last, you're going to do it because you, you would end up either feeling really embracing life or feeling quite miserable and depressed if you look at every day as if it's going to be your last day. But if we embrace the fact that everything we're doing is almost like the first time we do those things and, and just embrace this is the first day I've got this day, what am I going to do with it? It totally changes the way we, we look at life and that do I, do I do the ordinary things and think they're amazing every day? No. Do, do I drink a cup of coffee and go, wow, this is an amazing cup of coffee? What, what an amazing gift this is to have a kettle that works, have hundreds of people just suddenly come together to give the electricity for the kettle to work, um, the coffee beans to be picked. And that. So much goes into a cup of coffee. But every now and again, when we sit back and just um, – the episode I recorded yesterday – was about taking stock of our lives. It's like gratitude is almost overused now. Um, same as mindfulness is almost overused. And we all know we should be grateful for everything, but you cannot literally go through your day being grateful for everything, every moment. Get in the car, and you can be grateful the car starts. But if you start doing that every day, it becomes normal again. And the episode I recorded yesterday, which will be out this week, is just... Look around your house, walk through your house and take stock of what you've got, just like a business would. Every year a business counts its assets by taking stock. When do we do that? When do we go through our body and, and count the different assets we got? You know, the ability to see, the ability to talk, taste, feel things. And just sitting down occasionally and taking stock of that and going, hey, this is what I have got, but not in a, in, in a gushy gratitude way, just the reality of seeing the way things are. Because the way things very often aren't the way we see them. 
you know we're so focused on a negative bias which is a good reason we got it you know a negative bias keeps us alive a negative bias is why we've evolved so well as humans in a world that really isn't that friendly especially especially the last few million years hasn't been that friendly we've just made you know, centrally heated, lockable homes, we made the world a little more safer for us. So this negative bias that we so want to try to get rid of, we, we want to always think positive and always be happy. But the reality is, if we're always seeing everything in the positive framework, we're going to miss the signals and the things that help protect us, that help us improve our lives. Negativity isn't bad, it's what we do with it. The same as anger, it isn't bad, it's what we do with it. I, I think that's the one thing that if I could teach anything, it's whatever arises, whatever is here, what we do with it is completely our choice. You know, you can be given a hammer, you could build a house or you could destroy something. Above all, it's not the hammer. It's not the anger, it's not the it's not the feeling and when we're feeling depressed or something like that. It's never the emotion that's arising to blame for the continued suffering. And it, it reminds me, I once watched um, a documentary, uh, I think it was on Netflix or something, um, about the um, text messages that the people that were on the planes in 9-11 sent. And a lot of them knew this was going to be their last day. And they, they were speaking about, as you mentioned there, what they should have done with their partners, what they should have done with their kids and spend more time. And... And then afterwards, it, it visited the survivors, so people that were meant to go to work that day in the towers, but for whatever reason, they were late, there was traffic jams, they were sick, they had to drop kids off. They they celebrate their lives now and make make sure that they embrace the day, but they also ensure, as you, as you rightly pointed out, that they lost people, they lost friends, they lost loved ones, and they... they Punish, and I'm not sure if punish is the right word, but they, they make themselves feel guilty for that moment of yeah. they're here and the friends aren't. Yeah, and it's very difficult because everything becomes normal. Everything becomes normal. It's, it's like we we see something that we want and then we build up this, um, that this is going to solve all our problems. This is going to be brilliant. Once we move house, once we buy something, once we learn this new skill, and then we feel great once it happens. And then after a few weeks, it becomes completely normal again. And I haven't seen that documentary, but I can imagine the euphoria of we survived. We're going to go and do all these things. And then as life settles in again, they settle back into a normal life. And then they feel guilty almost for not living their life to the full because I, th I believe everybody feels to some degree we're not living our life to the full. I don't think anybody goes to bed at night thinking that I did everything I could possibly do to make today amazing. You know, th there's better days and there's days that are class not so productive. You know, I, I tend to go to bed at the end of the night. If, if I can put my head down and smile and go, you know, I did pretty good. I don't beat myself up. Um, sometimes I still do. Sometimes I write my little list in the morning and don't achieve it and put my head down and go, damn it, I've got to come back and do better tomorrow. But I kind of laugh at that struggle. But yeah, I can imagine, I can imagine there is some element of guilt, survivor's guilt, I think. I've heard that phrase before. Now, you mentioned um, struggle, though. On your website, you share 
um, how your childhood was a difficult one. Um, your parents divorced. Uh, you ended up homeless um, for a while. Do you feel like the, the the hardship of your childhood helped you, like toughen you up? If that's the right expression, um, for when your accident happened, because your accident happened after the homelessness, correct? Because obviously you were kids, and do you yeah. think that helped your a mindset, or was that a different mindset altogether? I can remember. When when we moved out of the small holding, my my parents divorced. I don't think it was my fault. <laughs> I I was only about seven at the time. But I can remember we moved out of the small holding. We moved to Truer, and we ended up in a caravan. And from that caravan, we were then put into a home that I thought was a mansion. We pulled up to this mansion, and that like big English stately home. You drive up to one thing, you get out of the car, and you go into the big door with a huge staircase and lots of rooms i think about eight years old i thought we made it i thought mum won the lottery or something and it didn't occur to me at the time but later on i knew it was basically a refuge for single women and i remember being in the bedroom with my mum and my older sister she's three years older than me so i think she was suffering a lot more than i was at the time i thought this was an adventure and I can remember eating an evening meal out. It was cold porridge out of a saucepan. And just something really struck me when mum put some of it in the saucepan and me and my sister ate it with spoons. And I kind of enjoyed that. That was cool to me. I was like a young child. But now I see my mum eat what we left. And I remember sitting there thinking, why didn't we have a normal meal? Why didn't we have a hot meal? What? Why is mum at what we left? Now, I don't know the reasons. I, I haven't brought it up with her, and that's what I noticed that day. I don't know if it really grows you a muscle to become strong, but it certainly it gives you a perspective of, you know, if, if you've got nothing and you lose everything, you already know that you can lose everything and be okay. Even at that doorway when I was crying, you know, I had no money. I had, in effect, I had nothing. I didn't even have my ability to move a foot forward. And being 40 years old, literally bawling your eyes out in front of public on a sunny Saturday afternoon, you don't get much lower than that. And I know now that I can be there and be okay. It almost seems like my life is a from one catastrophe or one failing to another. It, it really isn't. It, it's, it's Those are the times that really... Decide who you're going to be. Decide how you're going to show up. Those are the times when you've got to dig deep and do something. You know, they're the signposts in life. All of the other, the music concerts, the great experiences, the falling in love, the all of those other things that we wish would last forever. <laughs> all of those are in between, and all of those are the great experiences. But they don't very often define us. And I think that's why we focus sometimes and I don't look back at any of those events and go, I wish they didn't happen. I look back on them quite fondly in a way that I do believe I got the strength today, the ability to be resilient. And I don't live in fear because I really think I can lose everything again and be okay. You know, things work out. They just may not work out in the same timeline as you want them to. <laughs> Well, and speaking of things working out, you'd mentioned earlier, uh, your deputy elect of, uh, deputy, deputy mayor elect, sorry, of Truro. 
uh, which is a beautiful uh, place in Cornwall in the UK, down on the south coast. Uh, you've done multiple challenges for charity. You've organised music festivals. And your second book, um, The Gift of No Choice, is on its way, which is a far cry from some of the, the darker stuff that's obviously happened in your life. What else is on your bucket list? You've got a lot going on at the moment. What's on your bucket list? Well, I, I have a I have a three year plan that I'm not attached to, but it's a I, I'm very much live in the moment, be mindful of the day, and things like that. But you know, we're climbing the the metaphorical mountain, and I'm and I'm very much sit down, take a look at the view, and enjoy it. But keep an eye on where you're going, but don't become attached to where you're going. But I have a three year plan, and really. I wasn't planning on becoming a deputy mayor elect at this point or the deputy mayor for the next year. I'll become, if I still get elected as a local councillor in May the 7th, I, I will then officially become the deputy mayor. So I'll be learning what it's like to be the deputy mayor and supporting the current mayor. Um, Jan Allen would be, she's now the mayor elect, so she'll become the mayor. And then, if I choose to take it on or, and if the councillors do want me and I was voted in unanimously. So I, I so thank my fellow councillors for that, for the um, believing in me, having the trust in giving me this amazing responsibility. Um, and then I will become mayor for the year. So the plan then is to release my book come to near the end of the year. The book is called the gift of no choice. That really is looking at my life and, I think it's a wonderful thing when we have our choices removed from us. You know, I had no choice in that doorway to do something with my life. You know, if we're comfortable and everything is going okay, when someone comes along and says, well, give up your job because there's better things you can do. It's like, no, I don't want that. I've got comfort now. I think sometimes we have to be forced out of our comfort zone. So that's what the book's about, the, the gift of no choice. Um, I've had no choice but to face my battles in life. And I think they're gifts. I, I really do. And then the year after being the mayor, if that happens, I want to go back to John O'Groats' Land's End. Um, it's the uppermost point of the UK to just down where I live, Land's End. It's nearly a thousand miles. I attempted that in 2005 to raise money for dogs for the disabled and Fleet Frontline Emergency Equipment Trust. Well, I failed because on about the 15th day, I came out of my wheelchair and broke my shoulder. I would like to go back and redo that. Um, and I think now with Facebook and live video and having this new wheelchair that's delivered next week. Oh my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm literally like a, a child that has got the best toy in the world. I'm getting my legs back on Tuesday and just in time for the vulnerable people that have um, some kind of illness that, you know, COVID-19 that would really affect, um, we're allowed out from the 31st of March. And what perfect timing. It's just so incredible timing. So with that, I want to go back and do my John O'Groats Land's End. And I want to, my initial thought is I want to provide a thousand people with a Dogs for the Disabled. I had one for nearly 12 years it was called ben the golden retriever he would move stuff out my way he would pick stuff up and put it on my lap but most of all he is, is an amazing companion you know dogs have this ability to not judge you they love you unconditionally 
And I would love to be able to do that for a thousand people. So that's my plan after I've done the, after I finished the book. And the reason why the book slightly delayed is because of, I think the deputy mayor. And if I go on to be mayor, I think it's a fitting end to that current chapter. And it's wonderful having mindfulness and a bit of a heart in politics. Um, I believe it is there anyway. Everybody I see in politics, especially on a local level, they're there because they're passionate and they care. They may not, it may not be, always be exactly the same way as we see it, but there is heart in local politics. And, you know, that's my next three year plan. I, I'm so excited about it. Getting my chair on Tuesday, I know I'm going to go on about that, but that's just so awesome. <laughs> no, as I'm honestly like you mentioned as well, it's like you're, you're getting your legs back now. You can do stuff. The the, the lockdown yeah. is closing. You're getting out again. It's so I can I can feel the excitement coming through there. <laughs> this is green. That's awesome. <laughs> now you'd mentioned earlier um, that when we were speaking about the episode where you talked about um, you know being paralysed is or ten reasons being paralysed is awesome. That one of the the things for that episode was you know. Sort of change in perspective or, or, or offering the perspective that maybe it's not quite amazing what I'm doing. Um, uh, but to a lot of people, obviously, you're inspirational and they, they want to show that by helping stuff. Who would be your all time inspiration and, and why that person or people? I think my mum to a large degree. She, she went through a lot as I, I was a child. Um, I don't know how well she always coped with things. She hid it from us. So I think she would be one of my great inspirations. And I've never been asked that question. And it's, it's so nice to be able to put her there. And I've never thought of her so much in that way, but she is. And other people around me that help me out a lot. And then you've got the famous people, there's people that have made a big difference. Um, you, you know, the Mandelas of the world and people like that, that have lived in solitude in the gift of no choice again that have come out the other side, Terry Waite, people like that, that have been thrown in the most awful positions, but yet they found a way to compose themselves and use use that situation to their advantage and to help others through that. So I, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> no, and, and I, I like, as you mentioned, it ties completely back to, to your own mindset and, and, you know, your outlook on life where it's about people that have overcome the no choice. And, you know, that's clearly you know, shaped your life as it is now. So, no, that, that, that definitely answered my question. I think I was curious because, I, like I mentioned, I know you're inspirational to a lot of people who inspire me. I was curious to see who, who, who makes Stephen inspired. So, thank you for that. So, Stephen, this, I've really enjoyed our chat today and I, I could sit here and talk with you for hours and hours. Uh, but am I aware that it's it's a late afternoon there? I'm sure you've got stuff to do. For people that want to connect with you online or listen to your, your podcast about meditation and you know, taking the time to, to, to reflect, where's the best place for them to connect with you? The best place is uh, connectwithsteven.com. And I'll make sure I drop that in the show notes and any links to your podcast, uh, that'll be in the show notes too. So if you're listening to this episode on your favorite podcast app, as usual, just a quick reminder, head on to the show notes and you'll find all the links there over to Stephen. So again, Stephen, I really appreciate it today uh, and I'll be listening to some more episodes and, you know, and I'll look forward to the new one that's coming out soon as well. So thank you for today. Thank you, Danny. Really appreciate it.
This has been Podcaster Stories. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to head on over to podcasterstories.com where you can catch up on previous episodes, subscribe to the free newsletter, and basically choose your apps that you want to listen to the show on, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Until the next time, take care and stay safe.